we get to the place where we need to start hiring people. And there also happens to be a hiring crunch in San Francisco because a lot of people who work in the service industry can't afford to live in the city anymore and take these jobs. So you have a shortage, particularly of cooks. And then you also have this whole population of people who can't get work, want to work, are capable workers, but they can't get work. Why? Because they have a record? I mean, it's just, it's so dumb. Like it just, it, it's, we're, we're missing out on this whole group of capable individuals of our fellow humans. And we didn't want to open with this gimmick of, you know, ooh, or a restaurant that hires people with conviction histories. We just wanted to provide really good food and really good service. And hey, this just happens to be our hiring practice. After a few months, we started to come out with a little bit more. You know, we said it was okay to say that when the San Francisco Chronicle reviewed us because the flip side to not talking about it is nobody knowing how important this is. And I want I want this to be a successful option because not only could this be what other restaurants do, but this is this should be what other businesses do and how we look to hire, to just be open to it. Welcome to Delicious Revolution, a show about food, culture, and place. I'm Chelsea Wills. And I'm Devin Sampson. We talk with people who work in and think about all aspects of food, including farmers, chefs, artists, and activists. On the second season, we bring you in-depth conversations with some amazing people who work with food in incredible ways. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Just search for Delicious Revolution and you'll find us. Our website is deliciousrevolutionshow.com, where we have pictures, links, and more information about all the people on our show. If you have a food story of your own, we'd love to hear it. Call 510-859-7430 and leave us a message. Delicious Revolution is brought to you by Satori Travel. If you're a traveler, and especially if you're thinking about going to Mexico or Japan, you've got to check it out. They offer unique guidebooks, custom-tailored trips, and a concierge service for planning your next great adventure. Find out more at satorisatori.com. I'm here with Emma Rosenbush today, and we're going to be talking about her work with food and with labor and um, her current work at Cala in San Francisco, a restaurant that she just recently opened with Gabriella Camera. Hey, Emma. Hi. Thanks. So how did you start working with food? So I started, as I feel most teenagers do, um, I started working in restaurants as a server and a barista um, when I was 15. And I continued to work in restaurants into my early 20s. Um, Always, you know, summer jobs or jobs to support school. And um, I really took a left turn, I feel, into food when I moved to Mexico City and started this project Pichon with two friends. What? How did that happen? I know, so random. So I had been working for a law firm, um, which I'm sure we'll get to later, but I was always really, so I grew up in New York and I wasn't, I didn't grow up in like a farmer's market family. Um, my mom 
worked full time and then was at school at night. So a lot of my meals were out of a box or Boca burgers or cereal. And when I moved to California for school, when I was 18, I discovered the California farmer's market and it just blew my mind. And it honestly seems cliche. I read, uh, the art of simple food, taught myself to cook from that book when I was 18 living in my first house, or I guess by then I was 20 out of school. And, um, I just loved the farmer's markets. And when I got a job out of school and was working in the office, I had these fantasies of outdoor working and living. And when I eventually quit the law firm, um, with intentions to travel, I had a job. I started to work for farmers in the Bay in San Francisco. Um, and actually in the East Bay at the time. And it was my way of eating the way that I wanted to, to afford to eat the way I wanted to. Um, you know, the whole farmer's markets have such a trade economy that I could eat, you know, I could work. And even though the pay wasn't great, you would leave with groceries for a week. So when I started to travel, I had saved up money for a few years of working. And I went down to Mexico with the intention to travel and not end up moving there the way I did. But I discovered the, of course, the markets in Mexico City. But what really excited me was the farm's in the south of Mexico City in Xochimilco called Las Chinampas. And there to discover that there was all of this organic local produce growing in Mexico City, but it there wasn't that same, you know, coming from coming from the Bay Area where every menu describes, you know, every farmer's name that it is selling its dandelion greens from. There was just such a different interface with food and and agriculture in that city. Um, and the sort of, just to have learned about that there was this local food being grown in the city, but not such an outlet for it outside of the Sushimilko farmer's market or market where locals go, um, sort of spurred the next move. So Pichon came out of that and what was Pichon? Or it still exists, right? It still exists. Um, it's gone through different iterations, but Nikki Nakazawa is running it currently. And um, it started as an idea to serve brunch, like an American-style brunch, which was really lacking in the city. Um, and this is in 2010. And it also was this venue for this local food production that was happening in the Chinampas and eventually led us throughout the state of Mexico through a market in the city called Mercado del Cien, which was funny enough, originally organized in part by Gabriela Camara, who I work with now. Um, but through this market and I don't know, one door opened, you know, the next door opened, there was this energy in the city then that things were happening. Like young people were making things happen. And I'm sure that's still the case, but I was so taken by it. And, you know, I met Nikki down there. We had actually met previously some six years before that. And, um, 
but not well. And this just idea came about of we should do this. We should try it. And we had an original larger group. We had an architect. We had Mexican partners who were doing the finances. And we found Kenny, who was going to be our chef. And we put this whole team together. And we really tried to open a brick-and-mortar spot for about nine months until it just became apparent. It it just, it wasn't going to work. There was so much sort of red tape in the city and a lot of risk, particularly as foreigners, that we ended up um, doing it pop-up style. And we rented, we lived, uh, we also, Nikki and I also lived together. And we lived around the block or two blocks from, what was it? Las Tres Marias, Marias Lindas, this fonda that opened Monday through Friday. And um, so they were closed on the weekend and we got to know the family. We went there for lunch and we started renting. We decided we made this agreement with them where we could rent their fonda on Saturday and Sunday to do our pichon, to do our brunch. And we actually didn't even do it there for very long because we were fortunate to have these young architect and designers show up to one of the early pop-ups and offer us to come work in their space, which was Cafe Zena. Um, and that's sort of how it all started. It When we discovered after the nine months of trying to make this work, we kind of trimmed down and it, we sort of, the group dissolved and it was just myself, Kenny and Nikki. And, um, we had another like dear, dear friend, PJ Roundtree, who is an artist still in Mexico city. Um, he was with Kenny at the time and he was our fourth Pichon. And so how often did you do brunch? We started it, um, doing it every few weeks and eventually we were doing it every week. Um, so it was it was really fun. It was this really like interesting way to work where we had sort of a whole week to get it together. And we all worked other jobs. Um, and then we would put on this production on Sundays, but it ultimately was a really difficult model, you know, to have a pop-up and now to be working in a functioning restaurant, I understand better why it's so difficult. You know, so much of it being waste. It was like, we were either, we were either, over purchasing and then we'd have all this waste that we couldn't keep to the following week or we would you know because we were would fear that we would underbuy and then there's nothing worse than having than running out of all your food when you still could do more hours of business that doesn't look good and also it's just a bad <laughs> business move so we learned a lot but the beauty in it because it wasn't this money making you know enterprise, it really was an experiment. And I think we all learned so much from it, you know, about, about food, about people, about sourcing. That was, you know, I would say the most exciting thing about Pichon is the relationships we made with these different farmers. And we would find, you know, so-and-so growing this one thing. And we really made the menus around what we had available in a way that I think we could because we didn't have the constraints of the everyday business. And so I didn't really understand this part about you guys having other jobs at the same time, but Mm -hmm. that sort of makes sense for this broader story. Um, What was yours and did was, is it related to the other work you did as with as an advocate? 
No. Oh my God. I hustled many weird jobs in Mexico city. I taught English. I like had many different English teaching jobs where I would, I, I think I only worked at this one place for a few weeks because it was awful teaching English to businessmen at 6am in Mexico. I had like another two, two T that I worked with a few times a week. Um, I did a lot of translation work and editing work. So I worked with, um, I worked for Pedro Reyes and helped him on his projects. I worked with this dear friend, Jorge, who he runs so many like culturally important projects in the state. I don't even know how to describe what he does, but I would do different projects for him or help do transcribing of tapes. Um, I also had an editing job that I got working. It was based in the actually out of Brazil, but they had different, they printed this publication. It was actually this publication about petrochemicals that was twice a month. That was really my bread and butter. Um, but very odd mashing things together. Um, and still like not making (laughs) any money. But that was also the beauty of living there is that you could live and eat well by, you know, without, without too much to live on. Cause you could just buy fresh vegetables and fruit. But then you decided to come back to California. I did. I did. I had a lot of health problems the whole time I lived there, unfortunately. And, um, I fell in love with somebody that was living in Sonoma when I was down there. And I started to think about sort of where I, you know, these, these seeds that we had been planting, I, it was becoming apparent. We were getting to this place where it was working and it was going to take this commitment and investment to grow it further. And I started to have doubts about not doing that in my own land And I really felt like, um, I missed my land in my bones. I had never experienced that before. I mean, I'd never lived outside of, um, my country for that long before, but it was, I was, yeah, it was a really hard decision because we had spent so much time getting Pichon to where it was and where it, we thought it could go. And, and I loved, you know, my partners, they were also my best friends there. So it was difficult, but, but it became, you know, just, I just had to do it. It was, it was my next move. And, and then oddly or serendipitously, Gabriela Camara, who she had, she has Contramar and, um, a handful of restaurants in Mexico city. She, I had met her previously, um, of course, because if you were into food and restaurants in Mexico, you know all about her and her restaurants because they're pretty amazing. And I had learned that she was going to open a restaurant in New York and had, they had changed their minds and they were going to open in San Francisco. Um, and I got in touch and we had this meeting when I was still in Mexico and it was this really like the stars aligned and we connected and, they were still going to be in Mexico for a while. And so I was going to go and I could start looking for a place and kind of help in different ways. So the job was sort of unclear at the beginning, you know, I was sort of this all around assistant, um, but thinking I would be working in the restaurant and it started to clarify 
with time. And what did it turn into? And it turned into call a restaurant. Um, my position turned into the general manager and her partner, which was really miraculous and wonderful. Um, and it was a really long labor of love and other things. It took us about two and a half years from start to finish, just because we, in finding the space, in negotiating the lease, in doing the build out, that was a real stressor there to build a restaurant from scratch was sort of like hell, but an amazing experience, you know, and, and I'm one that I'm so grateful for because I knew fucking nothing of what I was doing. So to have somebody, you know, support me both emotionally, but financially, you know, to get paid, to help figure this out and really figure it out and do it. I feel like I went to grad school for restaurant, you know, starting. Um, but, but also difficult. And I think, you know, difficult for her because she had started a restaurant when she was 23. It had been some years since she was at this start one point. And in Mexico, she has this really established team and we were forming that here. So it was really working with a rookie, um, which made the process just hard. Well, so let's, let's back up a little bit and talk about maybe what you studied in college and, um, your Mm -hmm. like prison advocacy work. And then let's jump back and talk about forming a team and what that looks like. Yeah. So I, I studied, um, sociology in school and I went to one of the Claremont colleges in Southern California. I went to Pitzer college which had this pretty outstanding social responsibility requirement to it. Um, and the sociology department there was just amazing. And a lot of the work, like a lot of the classwork was outside of the classroom. So I was exposed to the juvenile hall that was in Laverne, California. And I started working at the juvenile hall, teaching writing and poetry. And I got a summer job there leading this course called Borrowed Voices. And it was just sort of my like foray into this world that I had had no previous experience with. And um, my research, like for my thesis work was around this. Um, I worked in a tattoo removal clinic. Like there was this interface of gang sort of work of people getting out of gangs happening in Los Angeles and juveniles and prisoners and art and everything kind of together. And when I graduated, I got a job working for the prison law office up in Berkeley, which was a prisoner advocacy job working as a paralegal for really the firm that's responsible for pretty much the majority of prison reform that's taken place in the state of California, really fueled by this law firm. So it's a small firm uh, run by Donald Spector, but it's just a bunch of badass attorneys and working for them was, I mean, it was so shocking and difficult. I remember, you know, moving up here, moving up to the Bay and, or one of my first days, we just, you get mail as a paralegal, you deal with the mail, which is how most of the correspondence is. And they represent all state prisoners in California who have medical issues and disability issues and mental health issues um, through these class action cases that they have 
one and continue to monitor. So I would get mail from strangers, from prisoners, you know, who were HIV positive and housed in Wasco State Prison, which is in the Valley Fever region and is illegal because you have a suppressed immune system and you can't, you know, be housed there technically. So they would reach out to the prison law office. Paralegals would read it, sort through the mail. We would, you know, had a whole system of identifying the level of severity. And then it would be a different level of advocacy work that would, that would come from it with the attorney. So it was eye opening, And I had the chance through this job to start to tour the state prisons, um, both for the medical rights case. And then more in my second year there for the disability rights case, which is called Armstrong. So I had a lot of exposure as this 22, 23 year old going into the state prisons interviewing people and looking at the conditions and then writing up, you know, we write up, we'll write up reports about it, um, review prisoner files. I mean, everything that all of my work that I had to do in support of the attorney's work. And it was just so apparent. This was, this was when, you know, overcrowding was at 200% in the state and recidivism was at 75%, which I actually just learned last week is still the same, which is upsetting because that this was quite a few years ago. This was back in 2008 to 2010, right before I left for Mexico, more or less. And on these drives, you know, I would be with the attorney and we would drive all the way to the Central Valley. And I just was thinking so much, you know, law was not for me. It moved really slowly. I didn't want to be at a desk um, all day, every day. And it was really apparent that there was just a need for jobs, you know, like if what if we have a 75% recidivism rate, obviously our system is broken, but one of just the basics of how do you how do you stabilize? How do you get on your feet if you get out and you don't have an opportunity to work and provide for yourself and provide for your family and there's obviously the financial side of that, but there's also the mental side, the mental emotional you know, human side of not working, not having a purpose, not having a place you have to be every day, not having that structure. And when I've gone through periods of not having work or even my weird jobs in Mexico, it's really hard. I've been really depressed and down. And I can only imagine if you're in that situation with much less of, you know, a chance of getting a job because of your history or your background, it just it's just shitty and it's not smart. Like as a culture, as a society, we are not integrating people back in. And so of course we have a 75% recidivism. What are, what other option do you have in many cases? So anyway, that, you know, my thinking was I had always wanted to have like a bakery, a gluten-free bakery. I had to stop eating gluten, um, 10 years ago when way before it was very hip as it is now. And I'd always thought, I should do a gluten-free bakery run by formerly incarcerated people. So this is just a weird little pipe dream. But fast forward to, you know, getting out of this world of prisoners' rights and still very much caring about about prisoners' rights, I realized what I was more interested in was reentry. Um, the reentry in back into society, it felt also more hopeful. It was really 
difficult, you know, to do that, to do prison work is, I have so much admiration for these attorneys and other nonprofits that do this because it is grim and it's, there's not a lot of hope in there, but reentry is this area of hope or it should be an area of hope and maybe isn't the, where it could be. But, um, can I just ask you like, what are employment options for formerly incarcerated people when they get out? So in my experience, having done the bit of research that I'd started to do, you know, it's not great. It's like work. And, and that said, for all of the employers out there that are looking to, to these folks to employ them, like amazing, good for them. I think that's what every businesses should be open to, but it tends to be work that's, you know, more entry level, um, working in a freezer, uh, working for, it seems to be landscaping, a lot of physical labor, um, and not, not the most sort of engaging, exciting, sort of like conceptually exciting work, which isn't to say that's what you need to have. But, um, when I went to, so the way I kind of got into this for the restaurant was, um, so fast forward, right. We get to the place where we need to start hiring people. And there's also happens to be a hiring crunch in San Francisco because a lot of people who work in the service industry can't afford to live in the city anymore and take these jobs. So you have a shortage, um, particularly of cooks, but of everyone, it's kind of a great time. If you're looking to work in a restaurant, you've got a lot of options right now. And then you also have this whole population of people who can't get work, want to work, are capable workers, but they can't get work. Why? Because they have a record. I mean, it's just, it's so dumb. Like it just, it, it's, we're, we're missing out on this whole group of capable individuals of our fellow humans. And, you know, when I bring this up, when I brought this up to Gabriella, she, you know, supported it and said, figure it out. And in a way it's different in Mexico. Of course, she hadn't been specifically seeking out this population, but, you know, Mexico has its own class issues and she has supported the servers that work at Contramar are probably the best paid in the city. Um, you know, she's always been into supporting people and, that's why people have worked for her there for over 10 years. You know, she's got servers that have been there since six for 16, 17 years. So she was in support of this. And when we did this outreach, when I sort of tapped into my old prison law office network and I actually contacted some of my old professors and they connected me to their network, my email was like, it, it went viral in this reentry community. And the response that I was getting from these organizations that were looking for employers, you know, were a lot were was this excitement of jobs that were a little more dynamic or just new and different, you know, and an employer that particularly I think the benefit to have to be attached to Gabriella's name and to be opening something that is has the potential to be in the public eye a little bit more and couple that with this hiring practice to me is really powerful. And I think to these organizations as well. 
Well, so something I think about when you talk about that is this idea of kind of sustainable sourcing, right? And thinking about our a lot of times when in the agriculture world, when we talk about um, like where our food comes from and what it is, there's this distinct lack of the people in that, right? And so I think it's a really interesting thing to bring that into the restaurant world and fine dining, which I think is a pretty like solidly blue collar job, but also requires this incredible amount of skill and training both in the kitchen and the front of the house. So um, what has that been like to negotiate that and think about that over time? You opened five months ago now. And just to provide a little context, it was your hiring practice it was just that you were open to people in this re-entry world, right? So yeah. you didn't have an employment policy that excluded people with records from applying for these jobs. Exactly. It's such a good point. I think about that all the time, particularly in this organic local food movement. Um, there's such a lack of, you know, not only who is growing the food, but who is serving it? Who is cooking it? I mean, it's, it's such a disconnect to be so, um, you know, to, to now be such fanatics about our produce and to not give a shit about the human side of it. It's just ridiculous. And I read, um, Sarojaya Raman's book behind the kitchen door which for anybody who hasn't read it, I, she is amazing. And she just wrote a new book called Forked, which I just got, haven't read yet. But she really talks about this. She started labor activism in New York after 9-11 um, when there was a group of employees who worked for Windows, Windows of the World, the restaurant that was in the World Trade Center, and to help mobilize sort of unfair restaurant practices or to mobilize activists against this and has been really successful at it. And she's formed this thing called ROC. Um, so anyway, getting off track, but yes, there is this disconnect of the human element in it. And we didn't want to open with this gimmick of, you know, Ooh, we're a restaurant that hires people with conviction histories we just wanted to provide really good food and really good service. And Hey, this just happens to be our hiring practice. Um, we, after a few months, we started to come out with a little bit more, you know, we said it was okay to say that when the San Francisco Chronicle reviewed us because the flip side to not talking about it is nobody knowing how important this is. And I want I want this to be a successful option because not only could this be what other restaurants do, but this is, this should be what other businesses do and how we look to hire, to just be open to it. Um, but it has been really hard for sure. And, you know, on top of starting a new restaurant and everything that comes with that to start a new restaurant and hire people who don't have experience working in restaurants before or in the style of service that you want or in the level of cooking that you need um, was definitely a challenge. And I think we had more turnover than the average new restaurant that begins, which I think has typically high turnover anyway. Um, and sort of 
I hadn't been prepared of the issues that would come up. Um, I think it's un- I think the restaurant industry has a lot of alcoholism and drug use regardless. I think a lot of people who have records who are out of uh how have served time also have those issues. Um so that was definitely something that came up a lot in the very beginning of, you know, understanding Understanding the lifestyle that people had been used to, particularly when we worked with the probation department, it's just sort of a more lifestyle of people having gone in and out of jail and not serving longer time. Um, funny enough, people coming out of prison who have served longer periods, I actually think seem to be much more stable because they've done that. And there's a level of work ethic that's coming out of this, particularly partnering with Delancey Street, which is um, Delancey Street in San Francisco is just extraordinary. I don't even really know. It's not a non-for-profit. They have all of their own businesses. They run a cafe and a restaurant and a framing and a moving and a Christmas tree companies all under the the self-sustaining organization that's really tough. You know, people go in there and you have to be sober and you work seven days a week and it really cultivates a fierce work ethic. So getting people that have come out of that program has been really great. Um, it hasn't really been the work ethic, the motivation that's been a challenge across the board. It's been the training side of it, you know, and us figuring out how we can do better to train because it's a steep learning curve for sure. And to have opened and to have gotten this wonderful recognition, which no complaints, we are, you know, humbled and thrilled and amazed, but it felt very much like in the public eye. Like we didn't have time to fuck up behind, you know, while we were getting started because we opened and there was this amazing boom. But, you know, I think back to those beginning days of service and it's just like makes me cringe a bit because there was a lot of just a lot of training. And what I'm still struggling with is like, how do I support these extra needs that are there? But I'm not a social service, you know, we're, we are a business. So there, so that is a challenge of the reality is people who have conviction histories just have more things going on or continuing to have things unresolved or instability that they're currently transitioning out of and to want, you know, I totally, I see it so clearly now, like how do you get out of that instability if you don't have the possibility of a job, but from a business standpoint, how do you give that opportunity if you can't get a, get stability out of somebody who works for you? Well, so let's talk about that for a second. I think, um, this concept of restorative justice is a big mm-hmm. thing that exists in the, you know, in the prison advocacy world and definitely in this reentry world. And it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And I think Delancey Street is like one of those institutions that has existed for a long time and mm-hmm. has done really incredible work in this one stage kind of of transitioning out of institutions, right? So, right. and when, sorry, when I say institutions, I'm right. meaning prisons and, um, you know, I think also for youth with things like, you know, group homes or, 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 you know, this whole kind of array of and state really addiction. They take a lot of people that just have not served time that maybe we're about to serve time, but there's a lot of addiction issues there. So yeah, they take on 
you're right, coming out of this complicated world. Right. Right. With a lot of, um, like you were describing, needs. Mm -hmm. Right. So maybe let's just imagine for a second, like what, like if you were to start another business, what would be the kind of support you would call in to have help with those issues that came up, um, but also let you focus on running a business? So like what would be the structure that would be needed? And maybe, maybe you know some of those resources at this point, so maybe there are some that you could share with people if they're thinking about doing this with their hiring practices. Well, I think, um, I think in a way what would have been healthier actually is to, and this maybe sounds, maybe this sounds harsh, but I think one thing would have been maybe not to have dragged on some of the initial relationships that I had with employees where I just wanted it to work so badly. And I felt so compelled by their stories that I sort of allowed, you know, things to go on too long. And that sounds like too vague, but, um, just issues that arise. What I'm learning is it helps nobody to like postpone like a level of unprofessionalism. Cause the reality is we're in a job, you have basic things, you have to show up, you have to show up. That's it. I mean, that's, that's the first most important thing you have to show up, not showing up, you know, no call, no show is really detrimental to your whole team. So part of it is maybe, you know, on one hand you give a chance and they, the, that person has to hold up their end of the bargain. All that being said, I don't mean to say that I don't understand like why these things came up. So I feel that maybe what one thing that would be helpful is instead of trying to take those things on ourselves to really, to really partner with some organization, I haven't found it to be in existence. Somebody should start this, but that really works with people coming out of these places out of the institutions, because even when you think about prison, like everything is, I mean, it's terrible, but everything is taken care of. You know, you don't have to think about where your food's coming from. You don't think about where you're sleeping. Like all of these things that are managed for other people when you get out of that. And when you get out of Delancey, even, you know, Delancey does this extraordinary job and then you leave and you got to find a place to live in San Francisco, no less, or in the Bay area. And you gotta, you know, figure out how you're getting to work every day. And like, there's all of these things, you know, and maybe you had this whole support for, you know, not drinking or not doing whatever, which is gone. So finding some sort of almost like a person between the organizations and the employer. And I know that they, exist. Um, I know a really great example in Los Angeles, for example, the LA kitchen where they're kind of taking on this like holistic approach. Um, I do think in San Francisco, the San Francisco probation, the adult probation department is doing as good a job as they can at the cask center. Um, this is also a very holistic, you know, you go there for job training, you go there for housing for, to get your social security card, to get your driver's license, to get sort of everything in one centralized place, but there's something like bigger that's needed. And I don't even know what it looks like, but maybe it's more focused on a specific training program of restaurants. You know, there's some element of what you got to do to work period, you know, showing up, not being late, professional 
conduct sort of thing. Although that has been less of an issue. The lateness has not, and the showing up has, that has been difficult for us. But I think maybe also if there was somebody that was specifically training restaurant jobs, and I just discovered, um, a project out of the tenderloin, um, run by Del Seymour, who is kind of like the mayor of the tenderloin, I am told. Um, and they're working with people in that neighborhood, which is very close to our restaurant and working with them on different levels of training for restaurant work. So we just hired our first person through them. Um, we'll see how that goes, but I would like to find more support in organizations that are kind of taking on that in-between place, because that's been the hardest. What I'm seeing is to go from wherever you've been to where you want to be, you know, it, it's a big leap. And again, as a business, that's a lot to take on. Like when you're already trying to run a business. Yeah. And I think you bring up so many of those things you bring up are, um, symptomatic of where San Francisco is at right now too, right? Mm -hmm. Like high cost of living and, um, you know, changing infrastructure in terms of public transportation and I think less access to food in a lot of ways, right? Like more access to expensive food and less access to maybe affordable food in a lot of these neighborhoods or cities that people are commuting from, right? So um, it makes me think about how these issues spread wider than, uh, you know, just for people who were formerly incarcerated, right? Like how do we have restaurants that have these social justice missions that can really walk the walk in all kinds of ways, like no, no matter who you're hiring, right? Absolutely. No, I think it's, I mean, maybe they just don't go together. You know, maybe in order to run a really successful restaurant, you can't have such a social mission. I mean, I hope that's not the case and we're certainly still figuring that out. But, you know, another example is we decided not to do the traditional tip model. We include a service charge of 20%, which we realize is high, you know, and therefore we expect really good service if you're automatically going to be tipped 20% or you're tipping 20%. Um, but the idea of the service charge is so that we can fairly compensate our back of house as well as our front of house. You know, legally, when you tip a server, that belongs to them. And in order for us to redistribute that more fairly, if we include it as a service charge, we legally can tip out the back of house, tip out the front of house. Um, it goes to our whole staff. We also provide full benefits, full medical and dental benefits, because it was the same thinking of, you know, why in all these other jobs, is it a given that you have those things? And in the restaurant service, it's like we just expect that it's just kind of more expendable work and that you don't need those things, which is ridiculous because people who work in restaurants have families too and have health issues. So part of my idea, our, our idea was let's really go all the way and let's try and make this as fair as we can to our cooks as well as our you know, front of house and have everybody be taken care of because if we take care of our team, then we have a better chance of actually providing the type of service that we want. You know, how do you expect your team to take care of others if they're not being taken care of? Well, something that stands out to me is, um, is Contramar in Mexico city. And 
the service is totally different than anywhere else that you go. You feel taken care of. You feel like you're walking into somebody's home. It's it's this amazing thing. People notice things that you they never notice in other restaurants, right? It's really like a wonderful, warm experience to be there. And I think each business has its own model for how to make that happen, right? Because mm-hmm. you can think of other ones in your mm-hmm. life too. And so maybe let's just end it there and um, good luck with that. It sounds like you're taking all the right steps to do that. And I can't wait to hear more about that as it continues. Thanks. Delicious Revolution is a show about food, culture, and place. Produced by Devin Sampson and me, Chelsea Wells. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you have a food story of your own, we'd love to hear it. Call 510-859-7430 and leave us a message. Of course, you can get in touch with us in lots of different ways, and they are all on the website, deliciousrevolutionshow.com. If you like Delicious Revolution and want to help our show reach more people, please leave us a review on iTunes and send out a link on your favorite social network. Thanks for listening. Delicious Revolution is brought to you by Satori Travel. If you're a traveler, and especially if you're thinking about going to Mexico or Japan, you've got to check it out. They offer unique guidebooks, custom-tailored trips, and a concierge service for planning your next great adventure. Find out more at satorisatori.com. (laughs) 